pray again for just a second. Father, open our eyes that we can behold wonders from your word. And Lord, hearing your word, help us to take it to heart. Let it impact the way we think, the things we say, the things we do. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a story in John 5, uh, one of the better known, perhaps, stories of Jesus healing in the Gospels. And if you remember this story, Jesus goes to the pool of Bethesda, and there's a lame man there. He can't walk. The pallet that he's been carried in on is laying there next to him. Jesus goes up and says, hey, guy, do you want to be healed? And he explains why these waters appear special. The text says, we're not sure if this is from the original text or not. It says an angel comes down, stirs up the water. And the first person to get in, they're healed. And he responds to Jesus and he says, well, I'm slow and I can't get in the water fast and so I I always miss the healing. And Jesus says, take up your pallet, go home, you're healed. So he does. The lame man gets up, takes up his pallet, he's carrying it along. Now some of the Jewish religious leaders see him and they say, buddy, what are you doing? You're carrying a pallet and it's the Sabbath day. You're not supposed to do this. You're working on the day of rest. And so the guy says, well, the fellow that healed me told me to. So the question becomes, well, who healed you? And he says, I don't know. I've never seen the guy before. So later on, he's in the temple, and there's Jesus too. Jesus comes up and speaks with him. The guy goes to the religious leaders and says, it was Jesus that healed me. And it says they begin persecuting Jesus because he healed on the Sabbath. Jesus worked on the Sabbath to procure a healing, and then he tells the guy to work on the Sabbath by carrying his pallet with him. Now, typically when we hear or read these stories about Jesus healing on the Sabbath, we're like, what's the big deal? You know, guys, get over it. Jesus does a good thing. He heals these people. And clearly in the stories themselves, the Pharisees, they really are the bad guys. You know, and the the Jewish religious leaders... You know, it says they're gnashing their teeth at him. Or on the Sabbath day when Jesus heals someone, it says of them, they're plotting his destruction. So there's no ambiguity that Jesus is the good guy and these guys are the opposition. But when you read the stories, if you weren't a Jew in their time, it's easy to forget why the Sabbath was such a big deal. And it was a really big deal for the Jews in Jesus' day and before. And the Jewish nation had suffered big time for failure to keep the Sabbath in their history. And so this is a big deal. And we read it and it's easy to pass over and say, Jesus is doing the right thing, these guys are evil, which is generally true. But we still pass beside the issue, which is the Sabbath itself. This is, to my way of thinking, of the ten words or ten commandments, this is the one that has the most confusion surrounding it keeping the Sabbath. We've said generally that we as Christians are not under the Old Covenant of which the Ten Words or Ten Commandments are sort of the summary or the entry. You know, the the rest of the covenant follows. We don't live under that covenant anymore as those living under the New Covenant. But generally, we've also said that those moral precepts we see in the law, they were true before the law at Sinai was given. They were true under the law and they're still true today. And that for us as Christians, we want to love and honor God through obedience. That's what Jesus says. The Sabbath is an anomaly in the ten words. And I, and I hope, my, my goal, I hope I'm clear on this. Uh, it's easy to get some of this stuff turned around, and you'll think I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth here, I think, before 
I'm done this morning, but I'll try and help keep this clear. Four points just for you to think about as we're going through. We'll touch on each of these in order. The first is that we are not under any requirement by the law to keep a seventh-day Sabbath rest. That's the first thing. The second thing is that having said that, still one day of rest in seven in which we also worship remains a good idea. We'll see this is what the early church practiced. We're free to treat every day alike if we want to. That's not because it minimizes our relationship with God, but because every day alike belongs to Christ in the new covenant. In a sense, every day becomes Sabbath for those who live under the new covenant. And then the fourth, there's a kind of rest, there's a spiritual rest of which the Sabbath day itself was a shadow. The the Sabbath day rest, that one day in seven, gave an inkling of a greater rest that God would one day provide in Christ. And we'll see that at the end. So we're in Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. As we read through this passage, Sabbath means rest or to cease from labor. So when you read through this, if you want to get the sense that the Jews had when they heard this, you can insert the word rest or to cease from labor for the word Sabbath. So this is the fourth of the ten words The Ten Commandments God gave to Moses, through Moses, to Israel there on Sinai. We've already gone through the first three. Here's the fourth, Sabbath day keeping, Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. God said, remember the Sabbath day, remember the rest day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath or rest of Yahweh your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested, or the omnipotent God doesn't need to rest, but he ceased from his labor on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath, or the rest day, and made it holy." So first, if you have a study sheet, the first point we're covering here is simply what is the Sabbath day? What is Sabbath rest? So we've talked about this before, but the Sabbath day is on the seventh day, and the seventh day was counted from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. And remember that the Jews were following the creation account determining when a day began and when it ended. So if you look in Genesis 1, you'll see that for each day God enumerates In the creation account, he says there was evening and there was morning day one. There was evening and there was morning day two. So the Jews counted the days from one evening to the next, just like the creation account in Genesis 1 did. So Sabbath day, seventh day, starting at sundown Friday, lasting until sundown Saturday, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, every servant, every animal, Everyone and every animal that was typically used for any kind of labor, they were all to cease from their labors. They were to take a break. They were to take a rest on this seventh day. And before I proceed on this, let me make a caveat point on this. Work is assumed to be the norm, right? Because they're working, he says, God says, you'll work six days. It's just the Sabbath day that I'm telling you must rest. Uh, The emphasis on rest here, but the understanding is work still is the norm. Work is not a bad thing. Uh, Work is a gift from God for all of us. 
If you look in the Old Testament or the New, passages in Proverbs in the Old, passages in 2 Thessalonians in the New, for instance, you see that work is the norm. And we derive great benefit, the fruits of our labor, right? Provide our housing, our food. We're able to give to others because we're working. And also, work provides a general sense of well-being. Anyone who's done a job knows, I sat down, I finished my homework, I wrote my paper, I did the inspection, I finished the garden, whatever. Don't you stand back and look at your work and sort of have this sense of well-being. So work is a gift from God. God's not in any way cursing work here at all. It's the norm. It's a given. It's just that that one day in seven, God says you're not going to be doing your normal labors. You're going to rest. Now, the reason Sabbath was so big in the Gospels is because God made it a big deal in the Old Testament. So in the law, I think you have most of these on your study sheet. If you look at a passage like Exodus 31, verses 12 through 18, God says, you shall surely count on it, observe my Sabbaths, my rest days. And there he also says in verse 14, everyone who profanes the Sabbath shall be put to death. This is a big deal. The death penalty for failure to keep the Sabbath day. Big deal. I mean, if you're a Jew under the law, this raises it, doesn't it? If I break the Sabbath, I can be put to death. Uh, if you go to Exodus 35, uh, 1 through 3, uh, going down to verse 3 itself, uh, God says there, what kind of work may you not do? Well, God says you may not even kindle a fire on the Sabbath day. You might not even light a fire. Probably this, this means, this infers, you're not to cook on the Sabbath day. Ladies, that meant if you were a Jewish wife or mom in these days, you had the Sabbath day off. You weren't cooking on the Sabbath. And you remember, if you go into the Exodus account itself, God said when he sent the manna down, he said it won't be there on the Sabbath. You're going to collect enough on that sixth day, and that's what you'll eat on the Sabbath. Jewish households would do the same thing with their food. Whatever food was going to be eaten on the Sabbath was prepared the day before. So wives and women at home had a break as well. They weren't working in their home. In Exodus 34, 21... You know, if you intend to take a day off, how hard it is, if you're responsible, if you have a lot to do, if, if you work a lot, you know, there's a lot on your plate. You say, well, I've got to get this done and this done and this done. God said to the Jews, you must always, no exception, observe the Sabbath day. So the way he said that was, uh, even during plowing time and harvest, you must observe the Sabbath. Now, there's a few of us in here who have farming backgrounds, but... You know, if you're a farmer, we're not talking about cattle and animals. We're talking about crops in the ground. What are the two busiest times of year? There's only two times in the year in which you have something that you can do generally about a crop, bringing in a crop. It's the time you break up the ground and you plant, sowing, and it's when you harvest, right? And if you're a farmer back in those days, your, your, your life for the next year is dependent on sowing and harvest. And God says, guys, doesn't matter. If you're sowing and harvesting, you take a break on the seventh day of the week. No matter how full your plate is, no matter how busy you are, no matter what's going on, you observe Sabbath. So you get the picture. God was pretty serious about saying, keep the seventh day as this rest day. The Jews knew this. This is why, again, it's a big deal in the Gospels. Jeremiah 17 
You guys know Jeremiah is a prophet who goes right into the captivity of Israel. He lives through the destruction of Jerusalem. And God had been warning the nation through Jeremiah. And one of the warnings was this in chapter 17. God said there, if you don't listen to me to keep the Sabbath day holy by not carrying a load coming in through the gates of Jerusalem, I'm going to kindle a fire in the gates of Jerusalem. I'm going to destroy your city if you don't keep Sabbath, if you don't obey me and keep the Sabbath day, because they weren't. And of course, you know what happens. They didn't obey. And Jerusalem was taken down. Nebuchadnezzar raised it to the ground, burned it and raised it. Absolutely. Nehemiah, last passage on this, Nehemiah 13. You remember, Jerusalem is destroyed. Israel goes into captivity. Seventy years, God said to Jeremiah, you're going to live in the land of captivity. But then I'm going to send you back. And so under Ezra and Nehemiah, Israel leaves Babylon and comes back to the land. They rebuild the temple, and under Nehemiah, they're rebuilding the city. And Nehemiah is the governor, and he looks at what's going on, and this is what he says in Nehemiah 13. There were men from Tyre, from the coast. These are Gentiles, and they're known as traders. They're merchants. They were living there, here in Jerusalem, And they were importing fish and all kinds of merchandise, and they sold them to the sons of Judah on the Sabbath, even in Jerusalem. I reprimanded the nobles of Judah, and I said to them, what is this evil thing you're doing by profaning the Sabbath? You're working. You're treating the Sabbath like any other day. Did not your fathers do the same so that our God brought on us and on this city all this trouble? Nehemiah is rebuilding the walls that were destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in part because God was judging the nation for failure to keep Sabbath. So however you see this, when we read these gospel accounts, we need to understand the Sabbath was a big deal. And the Jews had suffered for failure to keep the Sabbath day as God told them to. So, Seventh day of the week, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, every beast of burden, everyone was to take a break. Now, if you say why, this text lists at least one reason why. You see in verse 11, why did Yahweh command this seventh day rest? Verse 11 says, For, or because, in six days Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, and then he rested on the seventh day, Therefore, he blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So when God gives a reason for Sabbath day rest, he points back to the creation of the world the Jews lived in. And he says, I, Yahweh, I labored for six days. I spoke the universe into existence. I formed the earth and I gave life to animals and plants and all that in six days. And then I rested. And there seems to be this kind of implication twofold. One, God says, I want you to join me in this process of working and rest. And two, if six days was enough for me to create the heavens and the earth and everything in it and cease my work on that seventh day, then as a routine of life for you, six days in each week is enough to get your work done. And like me, you're to cease your work and rest on that seventh day. So they were being called into this relationship with God that referred back to his order of creation, working six days, ceased work because it was complete. It was enough. It was done. And so he ceased his work on that seventh day. And God's calling them back into that kind of time frame. 
And God is basically saying, I will bless you, and what you can accomplish in six days will be enough. You don't need to rest. You don't need to work on the seventh day. You can rest because you can trust me that what you're able to produce in those six days will be adequate. So this was a faith or a trust issue for the Jews as well. And I love the concept of the Sabbath in this sense. It gives this cadence to life, right? Because every week you've got six days of work and then a rest. And that sort of forms the basis of your life and your routine. The Jews were also commanded, which we won't go into here, there was a Sabbath of years. Every seventh year the Jews were not to plant or harvest. Same thought, that God, you're, we're trusting God that what we bring in in the sixth year will be adequate for the seventh. So it was a trust issue, and God was bringing into them this cycle of work and rest, of sowing and planting of summer and winter. And they were joining God, they were looking back at God's work on this first creation as they observed six days of work and then the seventh day as rest. Now there's another reason God does not bring up in the the Exodus passage, which he does in the parallel passage in Deuteronomy 5, and spiritually for where we're going, uh, this is uh, perhaps as big a reason to observe Sabbath as we're given in Exodus, but if you look at Deuteronomy 5.15, Deuteronomy 5 is the reiteration of the ten words. In Deuteronomy 5.15, God says, Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and Yahweh your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand, by an outstretched arm. Therefore, Yahweh your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. In the Deuteronomy account, God reminds them, you were slaves in Egypt. And slaves don't get Sabbath day rests in Egypt. You remember in the Exodus account, they can't make bricks fast enough. Do you remember they're working as hard as they can? They worked like slaves because they were. They didn't have a Sabbath day rest as slaves in Egypt. And God said, when I came in and redeemed you, I freed you from slavery. And so part of your freedom means you don't work seven days a week. You work six. And as a free person, you take the seventh day off. So for the Jews to work on the seventh day from Deuteronomy 5, it meant to think and live and act like a slave. And God says, I have freed you from slavery in Egypt. And your Sabbath rest is a reminder that you've been freed by my power exercised on your behalf. And when you keep Sabbath, you're also reminding yourself, I once was a slave in Egypt, but God's freed me. Once everything counted on me, everything depended on me. I was working every day of the week, no breaks, no rest. Now, God, by his power, by his act, he has freed me. And now I have rest because... I'm no longer a slave. So if they didn't keep Sabbath, there's this thought that they're thinking and they're living like slaves back in Egypt. Now, there's tons in the Scripture about Sabbath, and we're skipping over most of it. And we're going right into the New Testament here uh, to look at Jesus' view and what he did. And this will be brief also. Uh, But Jesus kept the Sabbath. You see this in the Gospels. Jesus, like any good Jew kept the Sabbath day. If you look at a passage like Luke 4, 
It says Jesus went into the synagogue and he read from the scroll of Isaiah. And it says he went to the synagogue as was his custom. This was his practice. Jesus lived as an observant Jew, keeping the law. He was at the synagogue with the rest of the Jews on the Sabbath day, keeping the Sabbath. So Jesus in the New Testament, in the Gospels, he's a Sabbath keeper. He's obeying the law he gave to Moses on Sinai. Jesus kept the Sabbath. There's a difference in the way he kept the Sabbath, though, and it was this. He did things on the Sabbath that the leaders thought he shouldn't. And remember, because the Jews had suffered exile, they lost their country, they lost their city, and they were taken to Babylon. When they came back, the Jewish leaders made up lots of rules about Sabbath day keeping. And they did that so so that people would not break that Sabbath law and incur God's judgment. But what had happened was it had all become about rules keeping. These fine points, you may not do this, you may not do this, you may not do this. And they'd lost what God was after in the Sabbath day all along. And the Sabbath had become a burden that they were bearing instead of a day of rest. So Jesus heals on the Sabbath. The John 5 passage is one, Luke 6, a man with a withered hand is healed also. And so the religious leaders in Jesus' time, they're accusing him, hey, you're breaking the Sabbath because you're working. And Jesus says a couple things in response. He doesn't say I'm breaking the Sabbath. He doesn't say I'm not keeping Sabbath. He was keeping Sabbath. But he says two things. He says, first, guys, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. This is a big claim for anybody that's not Yahweh. He says, I'm the Lord, I'm the master of the Sabbath. In Exodus 20, God says, it's my Sabbath day. Yahweh says, this is my Sabbath. So when Jesus says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath, he's also saying, I'm Yahweh. And so therefore, I can tell you what's allowed on this day and what's not. I'm the Lord, I'm the head, I'm God over this Sabbath day. And two, he says, it's always been okay to do good on the Sabbath. He says, this was never meant to prevent you from doing good to someone else. And so in other passages, you remember probably... Jesus says, you know what, if your animal fell in a hole on the Sabbath, you'd pull it out, wouldn't you? You'd work on the Sabbath because someone or something needed your help. Or Jesus also says, priests served God, they worked in the temple on the Sabbath. They offered the offerings. They performed circumcisions on the Sabbath day. They broke the Sabbath. Jesus says those things were permissible. It was okay. So Jesus keeps the Sabbath in the Gospels, but he keeps it in a way that's different from the Jews in his day because he understood, obviously, what he meant for the Sabbath all along. This day of rest, this day of reconciliation, this day of fellowship with Yahweh, with their God, always meant as a blessing, never meant as a curse. And so Jesus keeps Sabbath in the very best way possible. So you've got these really strong statements in the Old Testament, keep the Sabbath, it's a death penalty. You've got Jesus in the Gospels keeping the Sabbath also, but he tweaks the Jewish understanding of what was allowable on that day. But guys, then we get to the church age, and you know what happens? The Sabbath is not practiced any longer. You get to the church and the Sabbath is not practiced. There's a ton of confusion, and as I said at the beginning, 
about Sabbath keeping. And I think it's because well-meaning Christians want to obey God. They want to honor God. And so we keep the Ten Commandments. We're subject to the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words. And generally we are because they're moral statements about what God wants for all people at all times. But we get to number four. We get to the Sabbath and the church didn't practice Sabbath keeping. But today we say to ourselves, we keep the Sabbath. So we say uh, Sunday's the Sabbath. And so we rest on Sunday. Well, you know, theologically, you've got problems with this. Because Sunday is not the Sabbath day. It's not the seventh day. We don't practice sundown to sundown. And we may rest more or less on Sunday, right? But there's this attempt in our minds to sort of connect what we do today with Sabbath keeping as it was required for the Jews. They don't connect. There's a break here. There's discontinuity between the Old Testament, even Sabbath-keeping in the Gospels and the practice of the church. If you look at groups like Seventh-day Adventists and some, some Christians, minor groups that are called Sabbatarians, you will find some uh, nominal Christians who practice Sabbath, as the Jews did, seventh day, sundown to sundown. Uh, you might also uh, meet Messianic Jews who practice meeting on Sabbath day sundown to sundown. Um, For the Messianic Jews, they feel free to do that, and I'm sort of not bringing them into the equation right now. But if you're looking at groups like the Seventh-day Adventists, uh, it is very much a rules-keeping group, and they do not proclaim the same gospel of grace that uh, the Scriptures do. They're not orthodox in that sense. It is about a lot of rules. So, the church didn't practice Sabbath-keeping. If you go to Romans 14... Uh, the church grappled with this issue as they did with circumcision. God said here, hey, this is a reminder to you of the covenant, the relationship you have, just like circumcision was. And so for the early church, they're like, well, what do we do with this? Do we keep Sabbath? Do we circumcise? What does this look like? In Romans 14, Paul wrote and he said, some of you observe one day as a special day. Sabbath feast day, new moon, could have been any one of a number of days. And he said, contrary, some of you others, you treat every day alike. And the bottom line, he said, was it doesn't matter which you do. As long as you observe the day, single day or every day, as the Lord's. Romans 14. And there's other issues here in Romans 14 about what you eat, what you do. These are passages on the gray issues for Christians. Paul says, However you observe the day, observe it for the Lord, you're good to go. You're good to go. When you get to Colossians 2, this is probably the clearest uh, passage in the New Testament on Sabbath keeping specifically. In the city of Colossae, and most of the, the churches were located in cities that had both Jewish and Gentile populations. And in the city of Colossae, some people were coming in and they were saying, you need more than Christ. And you need this, this secret knowledge and you need to go back to some of these kinds of practices. And so Paul writes to address that. And he says this, Colossians two sixteen and 17, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink. You remember in the law, God told the Jews, you may eat some things, you may not eat other things. Paul here says, no one may judge you regarding what you eat or drink. You can eat anything you want. You remember in Acts 11, 
God told Peter, was it Acts 10? Uh, Peter has a dream and God says, uh, he sees all these animals, unclean and clean. And God tells Peter, kill and eat. And Pete says, oh no, Lord, you know, I've never eaten anything unclean. And God tells him in the dream, what God has made clean, don't you call unclean. This applied to two things. It applied to the Gentiles who were showing up at Peter's door to take him to the house of Cornelius, the first Gentiles to be converted. But it also really had to do with animals. That Jews now could eat anything they wanted to. They weren't under the Mosaic law. So you see that about food. But he also pursues this Jewish theme and says, no one should act as your judge about a festival day, a new moon, these were Jewish feast days, or a Sabbath day. If Paul wanted to say, you've got to keep Sabbath, guys, he would not have written this in Colossians 2. Paul says, no one may act as your judge about keeping a Sabbath day. And in fact, he goes on to say, these things are a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And we'll look at this in a little bit in Hebrews 4. It's all about Christ. If you've got Christ, Paul says, you're good to go. Don't worry about the shadows from the Old Testament, the feast days, the food laws, etc. Christ is the issue. Last on this, from Acts 15, uh, arguments from silence are not strong arguments generally. And I'm making an argument from silence here, but I think it's pretty persuasive. From Acts 15, because the initial church was all Jewish, right? Eventually it becomes Samaritans and then Gentiles. But initially the church was all Jewish. When Gentiles start believing in the Jewish Messiah, those early Christians who are all Jews, they're scratching their heads saying, Lord, what do we do about this? Do the Gentiles have to become Jews to be okay with you? And so in Acts 15, the church, the council in Jerusalem, the apostles and the elders of the church there, they got together to address this issue because there's these Gentiles up in Antioch and we're wondering, what do we do with them? So the church writes them a letter. Now, if Sabbath keeping or circumcision are issues, guys, for membership in Christ's church or for obedience, they'd be in this letter, and they're not. So the, the Jews there from Jerusalem say, hey, guys, this is what we want you to do. Don't eat things sacrificed to idols, things with blood. Don't commit immorality. If you do those things, it's kind of like you've got a good start, you're good to go, we're good with you, and you're good with us. And remember there, there's Jews and Gentiles together, and the Jews were still practicing kosher food laws, and so it's like don't offend the Jewish believers by eating those things. Paul, Paul will talk later in 1 Corinthians about eat anything you want from the marketplace, whether it was sacrificed to an idol or not. But here, early on, this is all they said. There's no circumcision required. There's no Sabbath-keeping required. The early church did not practice Sabbath-keeping, and it was not enjoined on the Gentile churches. What you see without any fanfare whatsoever in the epistles and in Acts is a transition in the early church. They moved from Sabbath day, seventh day observance, to first day observant from Saturday to Sunday. It's not developed. They just tell us this is what they did. So if you look in passages like 1 Corinthians 16.2, the church was taking up the collection on Sunday. That's when they met. Acts 20, verse 7, the same thing on the first day of the week when we're gathered together to break bread. They were meeting on the first day of the week, not the seventh, on Sunday, not Saturday. So the church 
without fanfare, without theological development in the New Testament, that's very clear anyway, they moved from seventh day to first day. And let me tell you, I've got a couple reasons why I think they did this. Let me hurry through. Uh, The first is this. Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. That was the Jewish feast of first fruits. And Paul develops this theme in 1 Corinthians 15. You remember for the Jewish feast of first fruits, they go into the field at the beginning, they harvest a sheaf of grain, they take it, they wave it before the Lord. And it's the reminder that everything belongs to God. And just as this first sheaf has been presented, they know the rest of the harvest is to come. Paul calls Jesus the first fruits. And what it meant for us relative to resurrection was this. Jesus rose from the dead. He's the firstborn of all those who are going to be resurrected with him. Secondarily, though, we need to understand this. Jesus' resurrection was in seed form the beginning of the new heaven and the new earth. Jesus' resurrection was the first fruit of the new creation that's yet to come. You know, you and I don't spend eternity on this planet, on this earth, in this world. Right? Peter says it's burned up. Revelation says there's a new heaven, there's a new earth. That's the new creation. And Jesus' resurrection was the beginning in seed form of that new creation. And the church moves from the last day of the week, looking back towards that original creation week, and now they meet on Sunday, the first day of the week, looking forward to the fulfillment of the new creation of which Jesus' resurrection was the seed form. This isn't developed clearly in the New Testament. We just hear this is the deal. They're meeting on the first day of the week. So the church quits looking back to the world God has judged in Christ's crucifixion, and they now meet on the first day of the week. They're looking forward to the new creation of which the resurrection was there in seed form, if you will. Also, secondarily, you guys know what day of the week Pentecost was on. What what day of the week do you guess? Maybe the first day of the week. You know, maybe 50 days after Passover, the Holy Spirit and the church of the birth occurs on the first day of the week, on Sunday. So you get the picture. It seems that in the resurrection of Jesus, we're we're quitting looking back at the original creation, which has been condemned in Jesus' death on the cross. And now we're looking forward to the work Jesus has already accomplished for us in his death and resurrection, looking forward with him to the new resurrection and the consummation of all things. So the church moved from seventh day to first day. These are calendar issues. Guys, I've got to be really careful because I'll, I'll run really long here. Um, these are calendar issues. These are days of the week, months of the year, etc. There's a spiritual issue, though, which all of this stuff pointed to, and you see this in Hebrews 4, verses 1 through 10. If you're Seventh-day Adventist, you know these are the verses Adventists go to, by the way. And they say exactly the opposite of what they're used to to say. So, very briefly, in Hebrews 4, we're told that a Sabbath rest remains for the people of God. There's still a Sabbath rest, Hebrews 4 says. And I've just said there's no Sabbath requirement. What's the deal? Well, it's not a seventh day rest. It's an eternal rest. And it says in Hebrews 4.10, the person who enters God's rest, he's already rested. He's in his Sabbath rest. To join God in God's rest is to have entered 
Sabbath rest, spiritual rest. Then the question becomes, okay, I enter God's rest. I get Sabbath rest. How do I enter God's rest? Back to verse 3, it says, we who have believed enter that rest. This is not a day of the week rest. This is a spiritual rest. It's a forever rest. It's a 24-7, 365 rest. It's the spiritual rest that the Sabbath they always pointed to. You and I and the people in Jesus' day and the people in Moses' day, we were like slaves in Egypt. We were slaves to sin and death and we could not redeem ourselves. And God, by a strong and mighty hand, He redeems Israel out of slavery into the new land, the land of rest, the land of promise flowing with milk and honey. And Jesus does the same thing for us spiritually. He redeems us from sin and death. We could never have got ourselves out of spiritual slavery. We could never have redeemed ourselves out of spiritual Egypt. But Jesus did that for us. And so for us now, if you're a Christian and you keep saying to God, Lord, I'm going to work better, I'm going to be a better person, I'm going to be a better Christian, you'll be able to like me more than you do today, you're thinking and living like a slave, not like God's redeemed. So we're redeemed out. All the work of redemption accomplished in Christ. And Jesus says now, I provided this rest for you and this is what I want you to walk into. So for us as Christians, we need to know spiritually, this is the main point, Christ has provided a full redemption. There's nothing to add to it. And by His doing, we enter into life with God and it's rest. We don't bring anything to it. We don't work harder. We don't try and be a better person. We don't in any way add to our standing before God the Father because it's perfect already in Christ. God the Father led Israel out of Egypt and slavery. Jesus has led us out of spiritual slavery and spiritual Egypt. And so we need to think like redeemed Jews. We've been redeemed from works. Our salvation is full and complete in Christ and we enter into the rest He's provided. Let me wind down with the list of four things I've got for you there. Uh, The first is this. We're not under any requirement or law for seventh-day Sabbath keeping. This pointed, Hebrews 4 makes clear, that this pointed to a spiritual reality. The Sabbath day was a shadow that pointed to the spiritual rest God would provide through Christ in our redemption. So the best way to practice Sabbath rest is to enjoy the full-fledged redemption we have in Christ. 24-7, 365. We're under no command to keep a seventh day. As I said, this one, this fourth command, is unique relative to the moral imperative that did or did not attach to it before. All the other laws, you remember we said, coveting, murder, adultery, you name it, true before the law, true during the law, true now. Not true of the Sabbath day. It pointed to a greater reality. Two, this is when you might think I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth. However, but keeping one day of rest in seven remains a very healthy thing and keeping a day in the week set aside to gather with the family of God and worship God is still a great idea. You see, it's not a law because we're not slaves. 
No, we're sons and daughters of God. We've got freedom and we've got liberty and we live under grace. But it seems that the best use of that grace remains to gather together with the church on the first day of the week. Not because it's a rule and we have to. It was the practice of the early church and we're liberated and we're able to. Because the church historically met on the first day of the week, and we do too, let me just say this carefully. Uh, I've jumped on people for this in the past, and let me frame it this way. You know, when uh, we had kids at home, the highlight of my day, and actually the highlight of my week was Friday evening, was to come home and sit at the table for supper with the family, especially Friday evening. Every night was true, but especially Friday evening because... The work week was over. And so we would gather together as a family, and it was a time to relax and enjoy each other. And the weekend was here. You can sigh, you can take a break. Well, for me, that's kind of the emotional quality I bring to the church gathered on Sunday morning. You know, um, Little League soccer, adult softball, summer's coming, guys, and your schedules will be challenged. And we make decisions. We're free. You know what? You could play Little League soccer on Sunday. You're free to. I think you're making a mistake if you miss, though, the gathering of the church for some lesser good. And we have all kinds of temptations to do this. So I'm not saying it's a law that we practice when we gather with the family of God on Sunday and worship and encourage each other, but I'm still saying it's a really good thing. And also related to a rest, which I'll close with here in just a second, guys, we need rest. Our bodies need rest. And to observe a day where we just say, yeah, we're down, we're going down, we're relaxing today, we're regrouping, we're recuperating, this is just a good practice. This is a good practice. The third one, we are free to treat every day alike because every day is the Lord's. Don't think because there's not seventh-day Sabbath-keeping that the days don't matter less to God, they matter more. Every day, if you will, is Sabbath day. We've already entered to the rest. Every day we have belongs to Christ, belongs to God. Every day is elevated to the level of Sabbath day. Every day we live to the Lord. And last four, we already possess a better rest than the seventh day of each week. Guys, the Sabbath rest was always about resting in the salvation Christ, God's Messiah, would bring. That's the bottom line. The Sabbath day was a shadow It was saying something better is coming and the something better is here. It's what we have in our salvation in Christ. Let me close with this illustration. God bless the French. You know, God bless the French and help the French. And if you're French, sorry, but you got some history to work against. Uh, You got to love the French. You know, I'm thinking of revolutions. You know, the Revolutionary War here you know, uh, primarily by people who believed in God, uh, read their Bibles, followed their Bibles, right? Boy, the French Revolution, not quite so, right? Atheists. It was an atheistic revolution. Absolutely. So you know, in the French Revolution, they wanted to throw off any encumbrance from the past. They didn't want anything that was traditional. They didn't want anything that was religious. So you know what they did, among other things? They created their own calendar, the French Republic calendar, serious. Still had 12 months, still had 30 days in each month. Uh, Three 10-day weeks per month, each day 10 hours, each hour 100 minutes, each minute 100 seconds. 
Okay, 10-day work week. One day of rest in 10. How long do you think this calendar practice lasted? It lasted 12 years because they wore out. They wore out because they, they realized we can't do this. And you know what? Nobody else works on our calendar either. Agricultural issues, you name it. By the way, you know the metric system is atheistic also because you know this was the beginning of the metric system, seriously. If you look at the biblical units of measure, sorry, Sean, uh, the biblical units of measure were based on human spans and leagues. All those things were based on human measurements, the pyramids, the temple, you name it. It was the French Revolution that instituted the metric system. I don't like the metric system. Didn't like the Republican calendar either. So Sabbath day was a kindness God showed. It was a day of rest. Originally, it reflected back to God's week of creation, which he said, six days was enough, the work was done, then I ceased and I rested, and that's what he wanted Israel to do with him and fellowship with him in it. But for us, Sabbath rest now takes on a higher reference because we know now, no, that one day in seven, it foreshadowed a greater rest, a 24-7, 365 rest that Christ has provided for us. God led Israel out of Egypt and slavery and they got rest. Christ leads us out of Egypt spiritually and slavery to sin and we get rest. So for Christians today, we get the the best of both worlds. We get the rest when we choose to practice some kind of rest on the weekend, on Sunday, but we also have the benefit we're looking forward to the fullness of the new creation Seeing Christ face to face in that eternal day of rest he's already provided. Hope that's clear. That's the best I can do. Lord, uh, thanks both for the scriptures that the Jews lived under, which was an invitation to rest and trust in you. Father, thanks that in, in this and so many other ways, Jesus has become for us our all in all. Lord, he's the fulfillment of the law. He kept all your righteous judgments. And he died in our place on the cross and has offered us eternal rest, this endless day of enjoying him and you face to face. And Lord, would you help us as Christians who have faith in you to fully lay hold of that so that we enter the rest you mean us to, so that we live as the redeemed who know we have full standing in your sight. And Lord, for any who don't yet know you, help them to embrace the rest your son Jesus died for. Lord, we give you every day, every moment, and every second. In Jesus' name, amen.